0: Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the your the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. Netsuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one slash James netsuite.com slash James
1: this is a big year the Ohio
0: Lottery's golden anniversary 50 years of excitement of growing jackpots and crossed fingers 50 years of funding for schools of changed lives and brightened days 50 years of fun and that is worth
1: celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.
0: I've spent the past five years interviewing entrepreneurs who all started what I think are easy-to-start side hustles based on their interest, their skills. We interviewed them and I compile all the results into a book. I call the side hustle Bible, which I want to give to you for free. All you have to do is go to www.jamesfreebooks.com. That's www.jamesfreebooks.com. I put together 177 of these side hustles and step-by-step information, how to get started on all of them. And they're all inside this book. Each method has the potential to move you closer to whatever your financial goals are or your life goals. These strategies are tested and proven, but you don't have to take my word for it. We interviewed everybody involved. So go to jamesfreebooks.com, see how others have created profitable side businesses and get this free book. I'm not selling it on Amazon. I'm only talking about it right here. So claim your free copy of the Side Hustle Bible today. Check it out. Go to jamesfreebooks.com. Here's the show. I love this episode. I love this guest. Enjoy. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show.
1: We're all the hero of our own story, whether we know it or not. And the way we think about ourselves, talk about ourselves, write about ourselves, present ourselves, You know, that's all a version of the romantic vision we have of ourselves. And they're different points in our life. And what that show really was, Dirty Jobs, was a chance to let me stop being a host and start being a guest. To stop being an expert and start being an avatar. And that subtle distinction changed the direction of my narrative And it allowed me to interact with people in a way that was more a reflection of authenticity than authority. The authority, in other words, went from me to my guest. And so suddenly, a septic tank inspector, or a welder, or a skull cleaner, or a golf ball retrieval specialist, is treated like like Access Hollywood would treat Brad Pitt. They become the authority. I become a kind of cipher, and it suited me.
0: Yeah, and there's this aspect of transparency. They're saying, I don't know. Right. And and yet, most people don't know most things. And, and, and the interesting thing about the word transparency is it's not a thought, it's an action.
1: Here's the, in my view, here's the transaction. To satisfy curiosity. To me, satisfying curiosity... Is, is child's play. It's no less valid to wonder how a sewer works than how the Hubble works. And if you come at it with the same levels of curiosity, enthusiasm, and wonder, and humility, well, then you ought to be able to shape a lot of different shows.
0: Mike Rowe, uh, I need your help.
1: All right, what can I do?
0: You've done so much great work The show dirty jobs where you, you go in there and take on these jobs that were essentially horrible jobs that people think they don't want and yet are incredibly useful to society. You sort of underline the usefulness and underline how incapable you are (laughs) of doing those jobs. Uh, That's kind of your main show you've been known for, but you've been involved in everything from QVC to the deadliest catch to a million other shows that I didn't even know you were involved in until I researched this, but you've been a a TV personality for a long time. You just wrote this great book. The way I heard it, it's, and as soon as I started reading this, uh, because at first I opened it and I started reading in the middle and I'm like, oh, this is like those Paul Harvey books. Yep. And like, he starts off telling a story like, you know, Jack was just, Uh, swimming after crashing his boat, and then you find out at the end it's John F. Kennedy or something like that. Sure. And so you have these great, brilliant stories of all these different people, same sort of stuff, but then you interweave your own autobiography, which I hadn't really known, you know, all the different details. And it was really fascinating to watch as you grew and evolved in terms of your standards and your... Career and your successes and your ups and downs. I didn't know about how you lost your first, you know, uh, the money you made from your first big successes and and mm-hmm. how you came back from that. So, but what I'm really, but the first thing I'm um, curious about is you're on QVC. That's your first big TV thing. Nineteen ninety, right? It, 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 and I'll, I'll let you talk in a second. This is just like my way of doing intro. Uh, you're 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 on QVC and you're hawking these, just the shittiest products of all time. And, you know, it's hard, you, you, you're young, you want a career, but it's hard to weave authenticity and integrity with kind of like an opportunity, like, oh, you could be on, t- you know, make money with this QVC thing, and yet you did it. You, and you did it in this ingenious way. Maybe this is a good way to start. Well,
1: performance is the enemy of authenticity or production is the enemy of authenticity and everybody mean production well i mean in my world um, everybody says they want an authentic experience but if you look at the things that we do in television to make sure that authentic experience can't be achieved it'll break your heart from makeup to lights to teleprompters I mean is there anything more inauthentic than a guy reading a teleprompter who wants you to believe he's not reading a teleprompter? And yet this is how we get most of our news from people who pretend to know more than they do. And if you look at all the constructs around them, they're designed to facilitate that deception. A performance is a deception. And I like deception. You know, I like I like acting. I like performing. But if you're going to make your living in the world of nonfiction, more specifically in the world of reality, then you have to at least comport with some prevailing definition of what nonfiction means and what reality is. I figure in a world of nonfiction, you're not supposed to do the things that get in the way of an authentic experience. And back in those days with QVC, I I hadn't given this much thought. I just realized for the first time in my life I was on live television, uh, expected to talk extemporaneously about products that looked very much as though they'd been purloined from the midway of some condemned carnival from those machines, you know, with the claw that bring stuff out. And, and I mean, these were things that didn't sell in prime time. And suddenly at three in the morning, I'm being asked to pontificate ad nauseum about them. And so I did the only thing I could do. When I realized I didn't know what I was doing, I looked into the camera and said, I do not know what I'm doing. And I introduced myself to the, to the viewers and said, I'm new. My name's Mike. This is the health team infrared pain reliever. According to my blue card here, uh, you can have one for $29.99. I don't know what it is. And I don't know what it does. And if you have one, call the number on the screen and ask for Marty the producer he'll put you through and maybe you can tell me what the damn thing is and that's the honest to god truth those were my first words out of my mouth on QVC and the phone lines exploded oh you
0: had didn't you do a product or two right before that like maybe even that same first evening mm-hmm. where you were you were trying to
1: Yes, and that then, was my first shift. Like, yeah. I tried. I tried with the Amcor negative ion generator to explain the importance of, of negatively negative charged. Yeah, I, I tried because yeah. you know I, I had a little bit of knowledge and I thought, oh, I'm gonna share my knowledge, my knowledge bomb. you know. But 20 seconds later, I told you everything I knew about negative ions and I still had seven minutes and 40 seconds to go, so. Still though, I think that requires a lot of skill to come up with
0: even a few seconds about negative ions because people always tell me oh yeah wind causes negative what are negative ions i can't even imagine what negative ions are right
1: and but what's going on in your brain right now is that you're on live television it's the middle of the night your audience consists of an undefined number of narcoleptic lonely hearts are you really going to persuade them to part with 29.99 by taking a deep dive into negative ion theory probably not and yet you have to kill eight minutes and so you play the cards you have the best you can. And those hosts, they all did their shows the same basic way. What I did was the only thing I could do because I didn't want the job, James. Are you understand? I mean, I, I, I auditioned for the job to settle a bet while I was singing in the Baltimore Opera. I got hired, I think, on a dare. And I took it just because I wanted to see what the experience of earning money actually felt like in my chosen field. I did not for any moment think I'd spend three years there free associating about an endless litany of indescribable products that I was nevertheless required to describe but there, there's so much to unpack there first off
0: you were and and we're gonna get to so much stuff we, 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 I, I'm respectful of your time you have an hour we're gonna get to a lot of stuff including dirty jobs which I think is really was a, a really important show um and
1: and everything you're working on on now if this goes well by the way i got more than an hour we'll call an audible 45 minutes in we don't have to be to the next place till like two thirty. so let's just see how it goes uh, let's, yeah you strike me as an amazingly facile open-minded genuinely curious cat i'll talk to you oh. as long as you want
0: oh well thank you so much so so you mentioned you were singing in the baltimore opera mm-hmm. and a lot of the things i notice about your career is that um, I don't want to call it skipping the line. Cause it's not quite that, but you know, everybody sort of thinks a career moves in a straight line. Like you go to college and grad school, then you get a job, you rise up, you, 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 start making a huge salary. You put in a 401k, you retire. Life is good. Right. That is not the way you have chosen. Correct but but even in a in a meta way you don't go the straight line it's not like you went to opera school fine-tuned your voice like the amazing magical instrument it could be and then joined the opera you took a you 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 kind of went through a back door which I think is is a skill people have forgotten because uh, because of the brainwashing of guidance counselors and parents and peers in high school and so yes, on
1: absolutely my partner, Mary and I discuss it in terms of uh, forest gumping our way forward. Um, I often liken it to, to falling down the stairs. You make progress, and sometimes pretty good time, but you get knocked around a little bit, you know, and that's okay. I personally, I realized when I was 17 that I was not going to do any of the things I thought I was going to do. I wasn't going to be the guy I thought I was going to be.
0: What did you, what did you initially want to be like when you were 17?
1: Well, I grew up next to a magician uh, named Carl Noble, who was my grandfather. And he wasn't a, you know, a make the rabbit disappear magician. He was the kind of guy who could build a house without a blueprint magician. He went to the seventh grade, but he was brilliant he began working early in his career and by the time he was 30 he was a steam fitter pipe fitter uh electrician by trade a plumber um a mechanic welder he just i just figured i would do everything he did because as a boy all i ever saw were problems being corrected by he and my dad you know they'd 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 wake up clean they'd come home dirty and the world was a better place so i wanted to do that the handy gene tragically, is recessive. And I (laughs) I didn't get the natural ability my pop got. He told me, get a different toolbox. You can be a tradesman, just get a different toolbox. I didn't go into the opera because I wanted to sing opera. I got into the opera because I wanted to meet girls and I wanted to get my union card in the uh, what's called AGMA, the, the American Guild of Musical Artists. And that would let me buy my SAG card, than the screen actors guild so i could go about the business of becoming a sitcom star or maybe a movie star i didn't know how any of it worked but you're right. actually abs- and just so people know
0: there's that catch-22 with the screen actors guild yeah. which is that um in order to get into sag you have to be a performing actor in order to be a performing actor you have, you have to, to be, be in SAG. SAG.
1: <laughs> correct i mean i couldn't even get i couldn't even audition For national network spots unless i was in the screen actors guild and agent after agent told me well we don't really take on people who aren't in the screen actors guild so there were there were multiple barriers into my chosen field and uh the only way i could find in was a a very circuitous route into the baltimore opera so my plan to the extent i had one was to do one show well first of all learn an aria crash an audition get hired, do one show, and then excuse yourself and get on with your life. Well, you know, the music was better than I thought. The girls were extraordinarily friendly. <laughs> I was 22, dressed like a pirate or maybe a Viking surrounded by young coeds dressed as French courtesans. And we're singing Verdi and we're singing Puccini and and we're having a hell of a time. So I I stuck around for a few years
0: and so your your first audition which you describe in the book or, or your first time meeting them they 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 saw something in your voice but it was obviously non-professional right your italian was awful but you knew the words <laughs> what did they how did you because because part of taking the back door is is a little bit persuading people to open the door correct <laughs> so so what what do you think was the the magic
1: there i think they saw in me a, a an absence of guile, you know. I mean, I, I really wasn't trying to be terribly clever, and I think for a while they—they they, can you say bad words on this? Yeah, pun? yeah. They thought I was fucking with them. <laughs> Honestly, I think there was this guy named Michael Gellert who uh, was a barbershopper, and I and I knew him through this weird barbershop harmony society. He got me the audition in front of a guy named Bill Unutzi, who spoke five languages and could play any aria start to finish from memory, and Tom Hall, who was the chorus master. I think those two thought that my friend Mike Gellert was simply joking. They brought me in completely untrained. I had a decent voice. I could carry a tune. I had memorized the shortest aria I could find from La Boheme. And Bill started playing it, and I immediately stopped him. I said, Mr. Yanutsi, that's a That's a bit higher than I rehearsed it. Could you take it down a key or two? Can you play it in a different key, I said. He said, I can play it in any key you wish. Which key would you prefer other than that which Mr. Puccini desired? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, So, you know, they just think I'm messing with them, but I'm not. And I I, I sung that aria as loudly as I could, as as well as I could, which wasn't very good. But at the end of it, um, they realized... I wasn't, I was serious. I really wanted a shot. And I think, I think what they heard was a certain amount of potential. And then a couple of things I couldn't control. Uh, I was young. I had a low voice. And they were in desperate need of people with both those qualities. And so the stars just lined up. And they gave me a shot. But the joke was really on my friend, Michael Gellert. When Nutzi said, he is your responsibility, Mr. Gellert. Our plan and our hope is that he shall attend a series of rehearsals and the in the immediate near future suck considerably less
0: well and you stay with them for 3 years 7 that's uh so so again it's not that you tricked anybody into anything it's nope. not that you uh avoided opera skill school, like clearly you got training on the job. Um, and this was legitimate. You, they wouldn't have kept you there for so many years without you, you know, being up, getting up to par. And I think that there's an important lesson that it's not about, uh, there's many ways to get to a goal. And I think your whole career sort
1: of exemplifies that, you know, what is attractive? right i mean that's a question and and anybody can ask it of of anyone but in the hiring process it's still for sale Uh, i don't mean a physical way but i mean what what qualities are attractive you know who do you want to surround yourself with um in general i think curiosity is attractive i think enthusiasm is attractive and i think a willingness to be in on the joke and find the laugh or at least acknowledge, acknowledge the possibility that there's, that there's humor in virtually everything. I think that's attractive. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't trying to be terribly calculated about it, but looking back at it, you know, as an employer myself today, you know, what would I respond to in a, in a prospective employee? I would respond to me 35 years ago, 30 years ago. I didn't know my ass from a hot rock, but I wanted to learn. And I was genuinely curious about the business I was applying for. I had no references to speak of. I had no bona fides, but I also made no apology for it. And my guess is also if you had been completely rejected,
0: it's not like you would have said, oh, that's it. I can't get my SAG card. You would have tried. This was essentially an experiment. Correct. And you would have tried another experiment. And I think experimentation is something that's the, you know, I think... I think repetition is often valued in our society over experimentation. And so you, you get the college degree, and then you send out 50 resumes to be to an accounting firm, and hopefully one
1: of them picks you. But there's lots of, again, there's lots of experiments one can do. It's, it's worse than repetition. It's a kind of soul-deadening um, uh, um, duplicity and derivation. I mean, We mentioned network news before. Why, why does all local news look the same? Why does everybody sound the same when they're on the radio? Um, Why? Why does so much FM sound the same? Why why does so much music sound the same? Why do so many talk shows look the same? And why do so many reality shows follow the same format? The answer has something to do with what we reward and what we discourage. And it has something to do with the way we mitigate risk today. So if you're you're a producer and somebody shows up to your office like I did with a pilot for Dirty Jobs once upon a time, and you look at that show, all you really see, if you're interested in extending your career, all you see is risk because you don't see a show that looks like other shows. Now, if you greenlight a turd that resembles other turds and that turd fails, you don't get blamed for greenlighting something that looks familiar. Anybody could make that mistake. But if you greenlight a turd that no one's seen before, then you're going to lose your job. So the podcast industry is not going to be so different either. In fact, it, it might already be suffering from the same kind of sameness. You know what I mean? It's because, yeah. we, because we, don't, we, we, we want to make safe bets, whether we're running a hedge fund or whether we're greenlighting a show or whatever it is. And so I I think real opportunity exists on QVC, certainly, for 21 hours a day. Every day, the viewer could see the same basic host doing the same basic thing in the same basic way. Now, at 3 in the morning, you got me. And I wasn't nearly as radical as people remember me. I was just surrounded by such breathtaking sameness that I could put one toe over the line. And I would sound like Howard Stern in the morning. But, you know, what's
0: great is you created almost your own genre on QVC, which was, you know, you have all, like you said, you have all these people at 3 in the morning watching you. And what do they want? Maybe they want the products. But what they really want in 3 in the morning is human contact. That's it. And that's what you gave them. You said, call me if you know about this product. So you let them do the job for you, but you also... You basically made them the hero of the story rather than the product. You invited them into the world of the extraordinary. They could call
1: you, and now suddenly they could be on TV. Correct. Look, that you just summed it up better than I have, and I've been trying to do this for a while. But when you put it in terms of heroism, then you're talking about protagonists. And if you're going to talk about protagonists, you're talking about narrative. And if you're talking about narrative, you're talking about anagnorisis and peripatia and all kinds of Aristotelian themes that inform our decisions in everyday life. I doubt seriously that anyone who's read Plato or Aristotle has tried to apply those themes to the business of home shopping, but they're there, and they're also there in the sewer. They're there on dirty jobs. They're there in podcasting. We're all the hero of our own story whether we know it or not and the way we think about ourselves talk about ourselves write about ourselves present ourselves you know that's all a version of the romantic vision we have of ourselves and there are different points in our life i reckon you know when we adhere to it more or less
0: yeah and 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 again we're going to get to how this applies to other areas of your life but i really am am initially fascinated by um, the, the QVC stuff, which I will admit is a small part of your career, but I think it's, it it starts to define who you are for, for the rest of it. There's, there's this aspect of transparency. They're saying, I, I don't know. And for instance, you've been on all the news channels. I've been a news pundit. They kind of tell you, if you say, I don't know, we're never letting you back. (laughs) Like you're not allowed to say, I don't know. Right. And, but, and yet most people don't know most things <laughs> and 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 the interesting thing about the word transparency is it's not it, it's not a thought it's an action so when you were transparent on QVC like I don't know here's the number call me if you know about this product you're it's almost like you're trading your vulnerability for uh you know you, you you you're you know for basically audience you're giving them something so you're getting you're getting this audience and appreciation back they want to know that this
1: is the real deal here's the in my view here's the transaction um we grew up in an age of authority and in my industry authority is the cornerstone of nonfiction it's also the cornerstone of news it's not just about being correct it's about sounding correct so in the age of authority you must come from a place of uh, informed knowledge. What if something happened in the early 2000s where authority was slowly supplanted by something else? And what if that something else was authenticity? What if we went from an age of authority into an age of authenticity where, I'm not saying necessarily that everything is authentic today, it's not, but at some point, I think we began to value an authentic experience as much or more than we valued an authoritative one. And what that means socially, I'm not, a, I'm not an anthropologist. I don't know. But for me, it was positively liberating. Because remember, after QVC, I got my toolbox. Now I know how to get work. I'm actually fairly facile and pretty good at it. So I get booked for hundreds of jobs between 1993 and 2001, hundreds. And I work for all the networks, and I'm really good at hitting my mark and saying my line and sounding like I know more than I do. My job was to create the illusion of credibility and competence in short bursts. So I know for a fact that that's what most people do in the news. That's their job. But happily, I wandered into the Discovery Channel one day with some tape some footage that i thought would be a new kind of show and what that show really was dirty jobs was a chance to let me stop being a host and start being a guest to stop being an expert and start being an avatar and that subtle distinction changed my own view of my own heroic self it changed the direction of my narrative and it allowed me to interact with people in a way that was more a reflection of authenticity than authority. The authority, in other words, went from me to my to my guest. And so suddenly, a septic tank inspector or a welder or a skull cleaner or a golf ball retrieval specialist is treated like, like Access Hollywood would treat Brad Pitt. They become the authority. I become a kind of cipher, and for me, a new sort of of model emerged, and it suited me
0: i think I think because of again that that authenticity, your audience is relating to you, and so you're looking up to the golf ball retriever, the skull cleaner, the welder. and so they become the hero, and we, the audience realize. Oh, this is kind of how the world is built and keeps on running as opposed to, you know, all the other sort of BS stuff that we all are told to aspire to. This is where it's happening. And, you know, even in the branding of this show, and I think we have in part Mary Sullivan to credit for this, uh, Mm. when, when they were trying to say, Hey, uh, Mike, let's put you out front. We're going to make you kind of the every man hero, you were like, you were basically saying, no, 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 it's these guys you have to, you know, that's where you, you pulled out the, the pig as the, as the branding element for, for this show. Sure. And, and I think, you know, I think what was so important about dirty jobs is that the, the mediocrity doesn't allow people to think these jobs even exist. Nobody asks the golf ball retriever what do you think of tariffs. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's like everybody's talking about where, what's going on? Are we killing babies in Syria anymore, or what's going on over there? And, you know, you're basically saying, hey, we should.
1: Th- th- these people are important too, and well, we sure. shouldn't forget them. Yeah, I mean, the the pig on the pedestal you know, and you're right. It was, it was Mary who said, listen, if you're, if you're going to do a different kind of show, why would you allow it to be promoted in such a predictable way? All the tropes, all the bromides, all the platitudes, you know, of the, you know, the blue collar apologist, the hero working guy, that there was a lot of pressure to embrace that kind of iconography, you know? Um, but at the time, uh, MasterCard, or maybe Capital One, I think MasterCard was doing, what's in your wallet? You know, they're still doing that campaign. My question was, what's on your pedestal? So the pig, you know, rather than uh, highlight a specific worker or, or myself, a pig, you know, a pig who makes the ultimate sacrifice, every, you know, countless times a day for our breakfasts um, and and various other, you know, things. Uh, put Put that creature on a pedestal and I'll stand next to it On a white psych and extol the virtues of work and promote my show next to a pig you know visually it's gonna it's gonna make you stop well not only did it work but when that pig shat itself uh during the promos and some of the most spectacular uh, lower gi track failures I've, i've i've ever seen certainly among porcines and all species for that matter um you know that was just delicious You know to stand next to a pig crapping in a national promotional campaign while i'm trying to describe what my show is and while the pig is actually showing you what it is from a pedestal i mean come on metaphorically that's some pretty high cotton let's stop to take a quick break we'll be right back
0: This is sort of a rhetorical question, but would you rather be busy or be productive? Start making your work take less work and find the right software for you at Captera.com/james. Listen, Capterra is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business no matter what you need. With over one million reviews of products from real software users, discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 specific categories of software, everything from project management to email marketing to yoga studio management software. No matter what kind of software your business needs, Capterra makes it easy to discover the right software fast. Join the millions of people who use Keptera each month to find the right tools for their business. For instance, if you need to, to find a way to build an email list and then market that email list and manage that email list, I've used it to check out all the different software packages. What do they offer? What are they changing? What are the new features? It is so valuable. I can't recommend this enough before you make any software buying decisions. Visit Keptera.com James for free today to find the tools to make an informed Software decision for your business. com slash James. Keptera, that's C A P T E R R A.com slash James. captera, software selection simplified. Growing a business is exciting, but hiring and onboarding and bringing on new employees can be a bit overwhelming with so many rules, regulations, and documents to keep track of, HR can turn into an administrative nightmare. That's why GoCo, GoCo automates and streamlines everything you have to do to support your growing team. GoCo is a simple, secure solution for onboarding new hires, enrolling in benefits, tracking time off, staying in compliance, and more. It's a centralized hub for sending, digitally signing, and organizing all your HR documents and data. With GoCo, you can give your employees an easy, delightful, self-service experience that's totally customized for you. GoCo will work with your broker and it offers flexible payroll options so your existing processes, documents, and policies will be supported. Switching to GoCo couldn't be easier and they'll even support you with a dedicated customer success manager to guide you every step of the way. I've been an employee and I've been an employer. When you're an employee, sometimes you just show up and you need to get all the benefits handled, all the orientation handled. You need to get a computer. You need to get a cubicle. You need to get, uh, passwords for all the different applications at the company. I've had to deal with this again as an employer as well. And it's just confusing and complicated. I wish I had had something like GoCo to help me again, whether I was an employee or an employer, because both sides of this are not easy. So again, you can try it forever for free. There's no catch and no credit card required. Just go to goco.io slash James, goco.io slash James to get started. That's goco.io, slash James to get started. You know, I think having, having mistakes and airing them <laughs> is is real like that's what's interesting like you say even these reality shows are so scripted now it would be you know the in the very initial reality shows i feel were were unscripted let's even take um like hbo's taxicab confessions in the 90s those were very from what i can understand those were very unscripted and it just felt so much more poetic as opposed to kind of the high drama and let's call it even like lipstick drama. Like everything's just painted up and and, and we get the drama that way. And like you say, there's, there's there are reality, the funniest thing is that there are reality show writers. <laughs> <You
1: know? laughs> it's, look, it's, I mean, it's funny, like tragic funny, but yeah. it's true. I mean, you know, Duck Dynasty was no less scripted than Married with Children. Mm-hmm. The formats were almost identical, you know, Um, they were scripted in the field and they they were scripted in the edit. I mean, the edit is where you really, you know, take control of the narrative and it's not your narrative, it's the editor's narrative or some other executive somewhere. So yeah, I mean, with regard to reality, the purest form is a fly on the wall. That's why taxicab confessions made a certain amount of sense. Cops is maybe the greatest reality show because you're, you're just along for the ride. So what I try and do in the shows I work on is make sure that component is present. And we don't do it as well. I used to call it a behind-the-scenes camera, and then, of course, you've heard the expression breaking the fourth wall. But none of that really works anymore. Today, it's about ignoring the fourth wall. You can do whatever show you want to do, but if you're working with me, you have to be all right with a documentary camera coming along and simply chronicling The entirety of the process now I don't know to what degree I'm gonna use that footage but I'm gonna use it in some way shape or form I'm gonna make sure the viewer knows that we're making a show and they're gonna get to know the camera people and they're gonna get to know my producer they're gonna get to know the people who are a part of the team because that's what that's what making TV is especially in the world of nonfiction and reality now if you're gonna make Game of Thrones Get it right. You know, I don't want to see a guy holding up a fake dragon in the background. I'm I'm along for the fantasy. But if you're going to call it reality, and if you're going to ask me to spend time with real people, and if you're going to tell me that you should get to know these people for whatever reason, then don't bullshit me. Show me the people. Show me the business of meeting them and and let me connect the dots for myself as a viewer.
0: Well, even the episode of Dirty Jobs where you have to and you, you document this in the book where you have to kind of climb up the bridge and go over the i don't know what you call it and you have to walk 15 feet on the the bar mm-hmm. how high how, how high up were you 680 feet 680 feet you didn't have the safety line you, right. you had forgotten it yeah and you were scared yeah and I don't know, if you had fallen to your death, that would have been great reality TV. <laughs> well, it
1: would have been a heck of a moment. So, um, you know, uh, we wouldn't have been repeating it much, <laughs> it, but it'd be a fine way to go out, I suppose. Um, yeah, that was the Mackinac Bridge over the Straits of Mackinac, connecting the Upper Peninsula and the Lower Peninsula in Michigan. And at the end of that day, you know, something that happened a lot on Jobs was I, I realized I could ask people For permission to do something and i knew they couldn't say yes so i looked very brave on camera asking and typically if it's a government agency or a municipality they've got you know lots and lots of forms that will absolutely forbid me from in this case walking up the cable of the mackinac bridge to change light bulbs but we had a helicopter and i knew the shot would look great and I also knew they wouldn't let me do it. So when the cameras were rolling, I said, Hey, you know what we should do? It'd be fun. Let me walk across the girder here off of the main road and then go ahead up that uh you know up that suspension cable and change some light bulbs. And the guy in charge of the, the whole operation looked at me and said, Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's do that. What a terrific way to highlight what my guys do day in and day out. And my sphincter slammed shut, <laughs> not for the first time that day, but I, when I realized, guess what, dude? How many times are you going to learn this lesson? Don't open your big mouth. Don't don't ask questions you think you know the answer to unless you're 100% sure. But looking back, I'm glad I did it because it was good footage. And you know what? I went up there with a guy who does it every day and they they actually let me do it, James. They let me do something that nobody had done before with TV cameras rolling. And that turned into a A really great moment for the show and for me personally um an interesting moment right because you you well a
0: in in terms of learning tv risk equals you know real risk equals viewership i think true so which again is defies sort of the way reality tv is going but the other thing is you knew you could take this risk and confront these fears and it probably
1: enhanced the show what you were able to do later you know most importantly, it was a real job. Mm-hmm. We weren't trying to do something in order to ratchet up the stakes. you know every day, people walk up the cables on the Mackinac Bridge to do this exact thing so I wasn't asking to to help contrive something. I just wanted to do what that guy was doing and so you know we had total permission to do that. It wasn't exploitative it wasn't overly dramatic it was exactly the way the job really goes day in and day out
0: and what's great about all these jobs is like i don't know i always used to walk around and you see bridges and you see tunnels and you see buildings and you always sort of think or i always would think good thing the world is finished (laughs) good thing (laughs) they finished building all these things because i have no idea how they made a tunnel a hundred years ago or a bridge or even a building. Now it just strikes me as the most, um, I I can picture how they can make a computer. I can't picture how they can make a building that just doesn't fall down immediately. And I think with, with dirty jobs, you really sort of showed everybody, these things get done. They're done by real people. In fact, they're done by many tens of millions of real people that are often ignored in the media.
1: And by the way, it could pay well. Sure. They can pay well can you imagine we, we built a transcontinental railroad at a time when much of the country was inhabited with people that would, you know, just, just as soon kill the workers. I mean, we, we built a railroad through, through hostile Indian territory, through the worst kinds of inclement weather. We burrowed giant tunnels through huge mountains. We went over some of those mountains. I mean, it's just, it's just miraculous. If you're, not, if you're not gobsmacked by that, then then you haven't really read what it took to do it we've lost our wonder today for a lot of those infrastructure things we've we i i, I don't know that we could do it today for in part because of what you were talking about before risk you know w- we just can't accept the risk the way we used to and so we don't build anywhere nearly the way we we used to build and we can have a conversation about whether that's smart or dumb, you know, but our priorities have certainly have certainly shifted. And 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 we don't, I think I think because of the way we process risk as a society and the way we have elevated safety as a society into what I believe is sort of a, a false position, I think we've created a lot of unintended consequences that aren't good. I mean, you look at it.
0: I mean, there's always the theory, like, why do we have so many peanut allergies now? Is in in part is because everyone is kind of, you know, using wipes on their hands every three seconds and stay away from anything that could have an allergic reaction at all, so we we don't get immunized at an early age. These things now, and you you mentioned uh, how in your family there was, you know, you, uh, you, there was plumbing maintenance building fishing all of these things and you and it was a recessive gene and you were joking about the recessive gene but it's really true like if if I you know my kids don't want to be plumbers not that there's anything wrong with it but it's just I did not value that growing up so my kids now don't value that other than they want it to work but they don't want to do it <laughs> sure and uh, I think we lose the desire to be good at being handy, being good with our hands, being,
1: being able to fix things. Look, there's something about the relationship between that which we resent and that w- which we depend upon, right? And the more we depend upon a thing, the more likely we are to ultimately resent it. This This phone, right? I mean, I use it all of the time. And when the battery dies, it's outrageous. Yeah, you can put a man on the moon, but you can't make a bat. Right? It's just like I am. I'm. I'm offended to my core all of a sudden, and it's not the fact that I that I got there. It's the speed with which I got there. I live in Northern California. I was out. Power went off for four days, a week or so ago. And you really want to see what the species is? You really want a uniting moment? Watch a wealthy part of California come to the immediate realization that A, they don't have power, B, they can't get it, and C, they don't know how to fix it. They don't have a generator. They don't have the knowledge. The minute you realize the degree to which you depend on those lights coming on when you flick that switch uh, is about the same speed you'll start blaming either PG&E or the linemen or the government or anybody but you, Right. Because the more you depend on a thing, the more likely you are to resent it. When you flush the toilet and the turd doesn't go away, by God, something must be done. How and, how could this be?
0: Right, and it's and at the same time, it's the most terrifying thing in the world because you don't know how to do it, and maybe you're visiting someone else's house, something like that. <laughs> Next thing even, you
1: know, you're shoveling your own crap out of a strange toilet and throwing it out the window to keep a little dignity. I, I've, Come I've on, you've there. all done it. It's happened.
0: <laughs> Uh, it reminds Louis C.K. has a joke where someone has their phone, and then for a brief moment, they're out of range, or their phone has some static or whatever, and everybody starts complaining. And Louis C.K. is like, really? Then, instead of complaining about why don't you build Verizon? Like, why don't you build it <laughs> right like may put the phone towers up and all the millions of miles
1: of lines and you create a phone network if you don't like this one this is normal <laughs> right i mean none of us are immune to it i'm flying from san francisco to new york yesterday my internet goes out it's an outrage i can't believe my internet goes i just paid 12 dollars for this and now it's out I, never mind the fact that i'm in a steel tube going yeah you know A thousand miles an hour, thirty-seven thousand feet in the air, defying gravity—you know, warping space-time, doing what my great-great-grandfather would have taken a year to do, just to you know, horse and buggy across the country. We, we've just lost. We're an incredibly impatient people, and I think it's not because we're bad. It's because deep down, we know, we know we're disconnected from a long list of stuff that really matters. We're more connected than we've ever been. In in this way, right? We're we're. I've got five and a half million Facebook friends. You know, they're they're drumming their fingers on the table right now, wondering what I'm doing. Why haven't I checked in in 24 hours? You know, I love them. They're actually my boss in my in my world. I work for them, but they're like a barking dog in the backyard. It never stops. So, but that's an interesting question, though, because yes, the audience. You always
0: have to. You can't completely ignore the audience. You can't be. Uh, an artist and say well you know screw the the audience i'm just going to do what i want to do now you can do that to some extent but it it probably won't work out so well uh you, you so there's this this give and take like on the one hand i think you always have reverted back to authenticity and integrity to to take these next steps in your career on the other hand you have to listen to the audience
1: as well yeah but if you listen to them too carefully they'll hate you and so how do you, and, you and find then that balance? Eat you. you you know what? It's the same way you find out the stove is a little too hot. You touch it, and then you pull your hand back real fast, and you go, "Okay, all right, that 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 was too hot." You know, it's like the iron is it on? I mean, how do you really know? It's you know, you get you lick your finger and you touch it, right? Um, you iron your clothes. Well, I mean, I'm just saying metaphorically. Okay. I've heard of these things, these irons. <laughs> I don't. I've never actually used one. Uh, no, I just ironed. Believe it or not, I ironed the shirt this morning, but it didn't work out, which is why I put the sweater over. <laughs> um, so,
0: what was I saying? Just in terms of whether you p- pay attention to the audience, ah, you have to.
1: If you work too hard to please them, they will hate you. Um, if you completely ignore them, they will hate you. Somewhere in between that contempt and the disdain that comes from currying favor or outright apathy is the willingness to amuse yourself so how many people listen to this podcast
0: uh,
1: hundreds of thousands are you are you thinking of them now or are you just having a conversation with the guy i
0: i have to say a little bit of both i'm having first and foremost i'm having a conversation with you because i think Because on the one hand, A, I enjoy that the most. It's not fun for me if I'm just interviewing. I don't view myself as a reporter. On the other hand, I like the audience. In the back of my mind, I always think to myself,
1: what's the audience learning? Here's why I think you have hundreds of thousands of subscribers. I believe they listen to your podcast because you are fundamentally concerned with amusing yourself or satisfying your own curiosity now much of what amuses you will amuse them that's the shared venn diagrams that make the audience and the performer mesh when they mesh much of what you're curious about they're curious about but if they think but if they think you're only asking what you're asking because they want to know then you lose something that's really important and i and i bet louis ck would agree you know the best comics the ones I enjoy watching the most anyway, don't give a damn if I laugh or not. They're trying to amuse themselves. They want me along for the ride.
0: Right, I think, I think uh, so there was a comedian, or there's a comedian, Brian Regan. Mm-hmm. His, his uh, he said in a recent talk at Google, he just tries to, he, you know, he views himself as the audience. So he's only trying to make
1: himself laugh.
0: If he's not trying to make himself laugh, then why is he even up there?
1: Watch his interview with Jerry Seinfeld. Oh yeah, that's a great one. It's terrific, and 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 I've always liked Brian because he's on Dirty Jobs. We used to talk about it in shorthand in terms of being in on the joke, and I'm not exactly sure what I mean by it, other than that kind of band of brothers thing where you where you get a shorthand with people. Could be your audience, could be your mate, could be anybody, but. It's that it's that kind of shortcut where when you say, do you know what I mean? They're already nodding their head, and you believe them, mm. right? It's a getting to that place where you can finish each other's sentences, or you can bail out of a sentence without finishing it and have that be okay. Those are the relationships we all kind of want, I think, in in media. Well, think about it, and,
0: and not to keep going back to QVC, but I think, again, there's a lot of seeds there that that blossomed into other things, but look at your interaction, which you describe in the book, with uh, Joan Rivers. Mm-hmm. So you have this really honest interaction with her. You're not, you know, even though she's, uh, as you mentioned, like an icon, and she's going up there kind of hawking her jewelry line. She's very honest about it. Like, this is fake, you know, 14 mm-hmm. karat, whatever. Yep. And and you're very honest with her about what you're doing. and And so... Out of all the choices she could have made when she had her own show
1: on CBS, she chose you to be her co-host. Not only did she choose me, she insisted QVC hire me back after firing me for the third time in three years. By the way, personal record. Um, so yeah, she she went to bat for me uh, in in every way you could, and she didn't really know me. We only met twice in person. She you know we'd pass in the night. You know, Kathy Levin was the woman she always did her shows with. I was the guy, you know, she would do walk-ons with, you know, or I'd walk on to her show sometimes, just very, very briefly. But we liked each other. And I I admired her immensely. And for whatever reason, look, she's a shit disturber. And and she knew she knew she was a jagged little pill. And she knew that, you know, she was literally selling hundreds of millions of dollars worth of costume jewelry. And QVC w- was desperate to have someone of her stature on, on their air. But Joan didn't fit the mold. And she gave me, and this is a recurring theme in my life and in, in the book too, but she gave me the first look at real cognitive dissonance that exists in media. When you have, when you have a hit that doesn't comport with your own brand, then you have an existential dilemma on your hands, whether you're a media company or uh, a political party. you know. And, and QVC had to figure out, this woman is so far outside the bounds of our G-rated box, what are we going to do? Are we going to kick her out of the box or are we going to change our standards a little bit to allow this to, to work? Well, you know, Companies deal with that every day. Broadcasters deal with that every day. Discovery had to deal with that when Dirty Jobs became the hit they didn't want. Um, Why didn't they want it? Because we were coming out of the age of authority, and all of the big shows on that network in those days had at their center an expert, a host you could really trust, or a credible insider, David Attenborough, Jacques Cousteau, Jane Goodall you know, real paragons of their field, you know, and they didn't have a guy crawling through sewers, looking under the rock, making a poop joke or coaxing the sperm out of a llama, right? You know, I mean, I was doing things in prime time that I don't think were, you weren't supposed to do them. I'm not even sure they were legal in in, in some states. Mm. But look, my argument to them back in the day was you're, your single-minded proposition—you know, the founder of Discovery, a guy named John Hendricks, brilliant man—he had one mandate: to satisfy curiosity. That took the shape of big blue chip specials and very, very authoritative series. But to me, satisfying curiosity is is child's play. It, it's it's it can it's no less valid to. To wonder how a sewer works than, than how the hubble works and if you come at it with the same levels of curiosity enthusiasm and wonder and humility well then you ought to be able to shape a lot of different shows and look humility is a big part of it and and if you think of it in terms of if curiosity is really the thing and i believe it is how how can you be arrogant and curious at the same time by definition, if you're a curious guy, it means you don't know. So if you're approaching everything you do from a state of good-natured ignorance, and if you're looking for enlightenment, and if you're genuinely curious, then you really can be the viewer, and you really do get permission to be wrong. Well, and this <clears throat> this brings to the, the book. So
0: your your book, again, is modeled, it's, it's, it's like half autobiography, but half you telling stories of these other people in this Paul Harvey style. Now to describe what the Paul Harvey style is again, it's you start off in a story where someone's having some problem, some complication, some disruption in their life, and they slowly begin to solve it. And it's like, it's like unwrapping an onion or I don't know, unwrapping a gift. And at the, at the, when the gift is open, you finally realizes, oh, okay, this is, ted williams or mm-hmm. this is you know some other famous person i didn't realize that was their story and it's almost like a puzzle to be solved. like as soon as i'm reading one of the stories i'm trying to figure out who is he really talking about And i never guess like you have that this one story where you talk about two brothers who are torn apart when the when the buffoon was elected mm-hmm. and they end up not speaking to each other blah blah, blah. i won't i won't spoil the story but it's not what
1: you
0: think right it's not what you think that's always the case it's not what you think Mm -hmm. you even lead down the path you know where you're leading people down but it's not what you think but then you do what Paul Harvey didn't do which is you show what you've learned from each story how this particular story the story of Ted Williams inspires you to this other thing in your life like here's a guy who he says something really fascinating to you this is a guy the only guy in history to have batted 400 in his in his career and and you asked him on your last day at QVC, no less, you asked him, what would you bat today? And he says 270, maybe 275. By the way, I liked how he was so accurate. Yeah. Maybe 275. Like, maybe
1: 275, right. You know,
0: f- one half of 1% difference. Like, and uh, uh, a, 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 and I
1: say, wait a minute. You're great center What do you mean 275? I was asking him how he would do against pitching today which is very different than pitching in the 60s and 70s. And, yeah, he said, I'd probably about 275. And I said, Ted, you're the greatest hitter of all time. What do you mean 275? He said, Mike, you got to remember, I'm 77 years old. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I I love that because, obviously, you were saying if he was at his prime against pitching today. Uh, Of course. And so he played, he did a little bit of wordplay. But then you made the really interesting observation that here he was, though, on QVC. Why wasn't he just
1: playing golf with billionaires or whatever. Why is he signing baseballs at midnight? Yeah. You know, why am I talking to him in the green room? This man is a hero of the Second World War, a hero of the Korean War, a fighter pilot who has been shot at and shot people out of the sky. He, he, He interrupts his baseball career to fight for the country, goes back to playing baseball, and becomes the greatest hitter of all time this guy ought to be able to do whatever he wants and here he is in, a, in at, at toward the end of his life signing baseballs and and hawking he's doing the exact same thing i'm doing and you know in relative terms anyway that was a moment that made me go wait a second what am i what am i doing and what am i going to be doing at 77 you know and maybe i ought to look at my finances differently, or maybe, maybe I can learn something from Ted Williams that he isn't even trying to teach me. But the greatest part about our interaction was he went home after his shift and I went on the air during mine. And, um, and I told him, you know, I was going to be dealing with an hour of collectible dolls to which he said, you got to be shitting me. And I just love that. I mean, this guy who's lived a man's life He's connecting with this other dude in the green room at qvc and we're commiserating as best we can and um you know i gotta go on the air and sell porcelain dolls and he's back in his hotel in my mind anyway watching me and hopefully laughing
0: because you i just want to interrupt because you, you start talking to the collectible dolls like well, sure. as, as, as getting advice from them about women
1: <laughs> well yeah man look it's it's one in the morning <laughs> you're, 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 you're surrounded by two dozen of these little porcelain nightmares. You don't really know that dolls are the third most collectible thing in the world behind stamps and coins, but they are. Huh? You don't really know that the people who are watching are, are deeply passionate about these creatures. And, um, and so you, you misbehave with them. You just try and kill some time. You pick them up by their hair. You put them on your lap you know you ask them questions they can't possibly answer cuz you know they're inanimate objects but <laughs> and so maybe you know may, m- maybe you hold a nun over your head and start singing the flying nun song you know like i did or you know sister mary margaret was the name of the 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 collectible nun that ultimately got me fired but yeah maybe you put a maybe you put a ruler in her pudgy little hand and smack yourself with it <laughs> you know what i mean uh, maybe um you know maybe you grope uh, insanely looking for the winder that is in the doll, you know, because if you wind up this particular nun, she sings "Climb Every Mountain," uh. which you can't believe, and yet there it is, right on the blue card. And maybe that winder, against the laws of God and man, doesn't come out of the area between her shoulder blades, where a sane person would put it, but maybe it maybe it comes out of her ass, right? Right. So 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 this and how you act on dirty
0: jobs and how you 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 built this career, I would say it's very much you're being yourself. Hmm. And what is... what is? Sometimes people say to me, oh, just be yourself. Like, for instance, (laughs) I perform. We're we're, we're in a stand-up comedy club. I perform downstairs five or six days a week. And when I first started out, people would say, be yourself. That's the worst advice possible. What if you're an asshole? Right. Or what like if someone told you the first time you're on an opera stage just be yourself it doesn't mean anything
1: <laughs> no, no like what are you gonna do sing abc bill cosby <laughs> used to say with regard to cocaine you know i ask people why do you do that and they said it, it intensifies your personality and he says well what if you're an asshole? <laughs> you know which he may have found out <laughs> which he might have found out Yeah. right so so what what but you do seem
0: like you 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 revert to your strategy for when you're on the air and and what's appealing to your viewers is it, it very much seems like you're being yourself. So what
1: what does that mean to you? Well, Brian Regan is partially right. You know, but I think he might go a little too far because he's trying to entertain he's putting himself in the audience's place. I I can't go that far because people, because they're my boss, but they're also a separate entity. It's still me in front of the camera when I'm in front of the camera. and when you're on stage here, it's still you, you know, you can't you can't abdicate that. You have to find that weird balance. And I think and this might be a bit of a stretch, but I mean it's 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 a kind of empathy is what it is. And empathy is in short supply today. Empathy is not sympathy, you know, but being able to to put a bit of yourself into the audience is really important. And I think it's important too for the audience to be able to put themselves into the performer. Total sidebar, but I saw something a few years ago. I saw a play that was performed in the woods. Uh, And the play had a full orchestra that was, it was, it, it was basically an original musical. And it was put on for an audience of about 400 men Mm. in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere. Full orchestra. It was an amazing performance. It was amazing. I mean, it could have been on Broadway. It was that good in the middle of the Redwoods. And after it, they took the score and they took the, the play itself and they threw it in the fire. Never to be done again. And they do this every year. They put on an original play, and they treat it with all of the care that you would see a Broadway show, uh, and, and then they burn it. And at first I thought, God, what an incredibly indulgent, weird, stupid thing to do. But then I realized what it does is it makes the audience the only people who can now remember that night. They're the witnesses. They were there. They saw it. It's their memory, and they can share it with whomever they'd like. But it was such an interesting way to sort of fuse a performance with an audience. And it was jarring to see it. And I still can't decide if it was more indulgent than interesting, but it made an impression.
0: I like it because it also shows that idea shows that ideas are not scarce. Mm. Everyone always thinks, this is my play this is my work of art it's it's got to be preserved in a museum (laughs) or something Mm. and but the reality is we're creative creatures we should be and when one thing goes another one starts and look at all the different opportunities you've had and you haven't put them on pedestals you know you've host how many shows altogether have you did you host in the 90s oh maybe a hundred Right. And so you weren't like, when one got canceled, did you think to yourself, my guess is no, but you could tell me if I'm I'm wrong. You didn't think to yourself, oh, that was my one chance. That show was
1: the best. That was the best thing I'm ever going to do. Not only did I not think that way, I would have been mortified with a hit. My my business model was based on failure. It wasn't based on success at all. Um, I write about Travis McGee, um, who's my fictitious hero. John D. McDonald created this character back in the sixties, 21 great books, great pulp fiction. He's the central character. Um, among other things, he's a guy who 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 takes his retirement in early installments. I mean, he literally says that. That's how he works. He's a he's a recovery expert. He's the guy you go to if the cops can't help you get your fortune back. Somebody swindles you, you're screwed, you get McGee. He keeps half. So what he basically does is he comes out of retirement to help people, and then he goes back and starts enjoying his retirement again. And And I just thought that model, combined with my grandfather saying, get a different toolbox, I thought those two things smashed together, what would that mean? Well, that would mean me going to Hollywood and New York to affirmatively look for opportunities that were so poorly conceived and so hopelessly doomed that no amount of luck or talent could possibly salvage them the trick for me was to do a good job to the point where i'd be hired again but not attach myself to anything that looked like a winner therefore i was able for 12 years to stay as busy as i wanted to have as much free time as i wanted and to work in a way it was utterly on my terms and this was terrific you know the only problem was with that whole model is that you can't care about anything you do. You have to do your best, but you just can't give a damn about the job itself. But
0: once you started dirty jobs though, that was something you cared about Deeply. And, and that lasted, you know, many seasons. It's still in discussions, yep. you know, you're still constantly breathing new life into, into the idea, into outlets for it. So, but 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 that's where you made it work. You know, after all of these years' of experience with TV and different TV shows, you, you, you had figured out a formula that worked for you.
1: Well, I figured out a new identity, not a formula. I figured out that I wasn't really a host. Mm-hmm. You know, spoiler alert, but basically the book gets you to a point where a baptism of, of, of a kind occurs in the sewer of San Francisco. And with a little help from an army of roaches, and a rat the size of a loaf of bread, uh, I was redeemed. And, you know, I found out that I wasn't the host I thought I was. I was a guest. I was a perpetual guest. That distinction is the only thing that happened that that changed everything.
0: And, and you were curious. You know, you were curious about these jobs, and that's what created, that was kind of the fuel that fired this show. Like. like
1: I just felt like, look, at that point, you know, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life working on stuff I didn't care about. You know, dirty jobs happened because my mother called me at my cubicle in CBS in 2001 to tell me my grandfather, who you now know was heroic to me, uh, was 90 and dying. He's not going to be around forever, she said. Wouldn't it be great, her exact words, wouldn't it be great if he could turn on the TV before he died? and see you doing something that looked like work. (laughs) (laughs) The, The next day, I was in the sewers of San Francisco trying to shoot a segment for a show called Evening Magazine that my pop would recognize as work. It was in that sewer that I realized everything I had been doing, I had been doing wrong. I got that segment on the air. It led to my dismissal from CBS, but it also led to the show that became dirty jobs. And it wasn't, I was 42 when I went to work in earnest for the first time in my life.
0: And, and it was also, uh, I guess around this time, you realize that the kind of the nest egg that you had built up uh, had been swindled yep. away from you. Yep. And I can very much relate to that. How did you, you know, you don't describe, you, you describe it in the book, but you don't describe specifically what was the emotion upon finding out
1: (laughs) well it was very similar to the feeling on the Mackinac bridge when i became acclimated to the heights right so it works like this you walk up this giant suspension cable and when you get toward the top you run into these stanchions so you're tied off you've got in, in fact you're tied off on both sides because you're walking up the cable, you've got your hands on these cables around waist high. But when you come to the stanchion, you have to unhook yourself so you can get to the other side and then you unhook the other one. And you start making time and you start making better progress and you pause along the way to change the light bulbs. Now, the problem for me was I was doing the job, but I was also aware that there's a helicopter out here with a camera and I've got a camera on my helmet. I'm trying to film the show while I'm doing all these other things. And so I stopped thinking about uh, what I was doing and started thinking how I was doing it, which is another big lesson we could talk about. And in the midst of all of this multitasking, uh, I looked down and I see a ship. It must have been 200 feet long, but at that height, it looked like one of the ships on Battleship. It looked like this big, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, man, I'm so high in the air. And in that same moment, I realized I wasn't tied off. Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, Nothing changed. I didn't fall off the cable. I had no intention of slipping, but I simply wasn't tied. And when I looked at that little tiny boat and realized I wasn't as safe as I thought I was, my sphincter once again slammed shut for the second time that day. That feeling was the exact same feeling I had when I realized that the money I thought I had invested that i thought was in a series of well diversified portfolios didn't even exist at all it had all been scooped up in this giant awful ponzi type scheme nothing changed because i don't spend money Th- these these clothes i took from a, the last shoot i don't own much i never did and at that time i owned nothing you know i lived in hotels I had three different jobs. I saved all the money I made and I lived in clothes that weren't really mine. So it's not like all of a sudden I was suddenly in in terrible debt. I don't have any kids. It's not like, oh no, oh no. And yet my sphincter slammed shut because my safety net was gone. And it was really interesting to lose everything financially and go from, you know, a seven figure portfolio to 0.0 is really no different at all than being on a kind of tightrope or a suspension cable and realizing that the net you thought you had isn't there. On the one hand, nothing changes. But, of course, what you realize is the value of a safety net isn't just the fact that it can catch you if you fall. It's the fact that it can let you function when you don't. And when you suddenly remove it, most normal people, and I do think I'm still mostly normal, will, will be transformed in an unfortunate way. The only person I've ever seen that's immune to that is, is that guy who just climbed half dome, right? Um, free solo. If you haven't seen that, as I was writing this story, I was watching this documentary free solo tells the story of a guy who climbs half dome with no ropes, never been done before, you know, and it's the most It's the most jarring, shocking, incredible documentary I've ever seen because that guy's brain has no regard for safety nets. He's one of the few that can function without them.
0: I I think it is really scary to have, you know, society values so much that financial safety net that when it suddenly disappears, I mean, often people think, or I would often think, my self-worth was the same as my net worth. And when suddenly your net worth goes to zero when it's been like you say in seven figures or more you feel you feel like people could smell it on you and I was afraid to be desperate when I was looking for the next opportunity did that happen to you yeah yeah several times (laughs) and I see I had a good skill of making it and a really good skill of losing it so I so and even now people say oh well you were so good at making it it must give you some confidence if you ever lose it again that you'll make it again nope it's the same horror every single time and i'm i feel like people are going to smell on me and then they're going to see it on me when i try for that next opportunity like when you found out and you're going to keep pushing dirty jobs and other opportunities were you afraid there was this extra layer of desperation that was going to be on you
1: no no i wasn't i was just more disappointed in myself that my I really thought I had it figured out, James. I mean, you know, I, I grew up in Baltimore and I have some really close friends who, you know, we all went through the acting thing together. And I know a lot of people in, in the industry and, and most of them to this day are, are struggling. They're, they're my age and they're still in there, you know, doing the best they can. And it's a struggle. Well, you know, I, I, I did something different. I actually stayed in Baltimore. I got a local job in media and I saved all my money. I just squirreled it all away. I mean, literally like a squirrel putting the nuts away. I and you were living
0: it. for free. We didn't. People should read that story in the book because that's yeah.
1: fascinating too. I'm living for free in a mansion, right? I don't have any expenses. I'm saving every dime I make. And along the way, I became arrogant in a way I didn't even realize. You know, I was congratulating. I mean, I really had it figured out. I'm taking four or five months off a year. I'm traveling around the world. I work when I want. I'm saving money. It's growing like a weed because I have this tremendous uh, advisor. (laughs) And, you know, at the time, I just was very, very smug in in what must have been a really kind of annoying way. And so I, you know, I needed some kind of comeuppance. I got it. And, um, and so it was, it was humbling to lose everything at 40 and to go to work in earnest for the first time. But look, as I was saying goodbye to Travis McGee, as I was saying goodbye to that whole business working model, my mother is calling me to tell me to do something on television that my grandfather would recognize as work. Um, all of that lined up. In a really serendipitous way and the fact that dirty jobs evolved out of a single segment on evening magazine a show that nobody watched and i didn't even really want to be hosting i wouldn't have gone in the sewer even even as a result of my mother's call if i hadn't if i hadn't just lost everything so a lot of things had to had to happen at the same time in order for me to have something like a second act
0: but i think i think also it sounds like for you, and this similar thing happened to me, is that when you do find something that is meaningful, that you see people are responding to, that is almost the glue that keeps things together, that kind of patches you up so you could, you, you could survive and then, and then thrive. And it sounds like that's what happened to
1: you. Look, man, it's, you don't know how empty your glass is until somebody fills it up. Hmm. You know, I, I had never in my career ever had anybody pull me aside to thank me you know, ever. And on dirty jobs, it it still happens to this day, every single day. Now, it's funny, people watch the show for different reasons. You know, fundamentally, it was an entertainment proposition. Um, But, you know, I I, I told this to Mary uh, when I was trying to convince her to leave her law firm and actually, you know, run a business for me. Um, I was in Newark Airport, Uh, this would have been 2006. Dirty Jobs had been on the air a year and a half. It was a hit. And I started walking through the airport and a guy walks up to me. He's dressed in coveralls. Looks like he'd been doing some maintenance at the airport. And he said, hey man, I just want to tell you, my wife and I watch your show every Tuesday night. We love it. We watch it with our kids because it's a great opportunity to show them all of the different opportunities that exist and that all jobs matter. And that just made me feel terrific. Reminded me of my grandfather. I thanked him. And 15 feet later, another guy walks up to me, Brooks Brothers suit, Wall Street type, says, hey, Mike, just want to say, love the show. I watch it with my wife every Tuesday. We watch with our kids because it's so great. You know, we can look at this show and I can say to my kids, see what happens if you don't go to college. I'm like, oh, son of a bitch. It's like the exact opposite thing I'm trying to do. I know. I But That's you a can't whole, you can't decide how people are going to react to your smack. You just you have to put it out there and they'll find something they like. They'll find something that resonates with their worldview. But you can't you can't decide what they're gonna like.
0: You know, the the college thing, we could do a whole other hour-long podcast. I actually just wrote about it this this morning for the 85th time, but um now, where we we've called the audible, you've got to get to your next.
1: Wait a minute, who th- who called the audible? What what time do I have to be there? One thirty or two thirty? It hit's at two thirty. What time is it? It's one twenty right now. Oh yeah, oh, but it's uh, half an hour there because of, the of all the traffic outside, and it's a live hit. I'm just so. telling you, whatever's happening next is not going to be nearly as interesting. <laughs> as, <laughs> I mean, honestly, the guy is. We can go fifty more minutes.
0: Uh, nah, we're gonna, we'll, 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 i don't I'll, know about 50. i'll keep it i'll keep it as tight as possible uh, <laughs> college you've been outspoken so in 2005 i wrote for an article for the financial times i said no kid should go to college anymore and
1: holy <laughs> did you really
0: yeah and then there was outrage <laughs> i lost friendships <laughs> i lost family everything <laughs> now i feel it's a more of a discussion but still you know everybody will 95% will argue against me but it's a discussion at least now and you know i've seen you speaking out about about college it it really makes no sense to me why kids are going to college now be, but i'll let you, you look
1: it's whenever i talk about this what comes back over the net is mike's anti education which I'm, is ridiculous i'm not i i mean i of course not if you don't have an education today uh, you are screwed. But an education is not purely the purview of a four-year degree. It never has been, and hopefully it never will be. But in the late 70s, uh, college needed a PR push, and it got one. Unfortunately, the PR push came at the expense of every other form of education. And so college became a cautionary tale. You know, If you don't go to college, then you're going to wind up over here with some vocational consolation prize so we set the table in a really jacked up binary stupid way we put incredible pressure on a whole generation of kids to borrow whatever money was necessary in order to get their magic paper early on in this interview like five or six hours ago you said um you laid out a chronology of how events typically work but you left out one thing the first thing what we tell kids to do today first and foremost is decide what they want to be then right then you go through the process of borrowing money going to school getting your degree interviewing blah 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 and then if you're fortunate uh, all your dreams will come true because you will get your dream job and then you'll be allowed to be to be happy uh, that whole narrative is upside down and backwards but while we're telling kids that while we're encouraging them cr- encouraging them to borrow whatever it takes Um, we're ignoring a whole other list of viable opportunities. We're also taking shop class out of high schools at the same time. Is there a better way to tell a kid uh, what's meaningful and meaningless than by just removing it from sight? So we took the arts out of the vocational arts. VoTech turned into shop. We walked shop out behind the barn, shot it in the head, got rid of that, then we watched the skills gap get wider and wider and wider and kept telling kids that those opportunities were beneath them while we put historic pressure on the same generation to borrow whatever it takes to get the magic ticket when people ask me why college is so damn expensive today i said well how could it not be we freed up a bottomless pile of money now we got 1.5 trillion dollars in student loans on the books the unemployment rate for college graduates today i just read the article coming over it's nearly four percent the average rate's 3.6 your odds are worse with a degree people are going to start talking about that real soon and those guys who you lost friendships over are going to feel really stupid in the next i i would say the next couple of years because the chickens are coming home to roost
0: they have to because just everyone talks about income inequality why do you think it happens when you're pressuring you know 50 million kids to get into more debt than a generation has ever gotten into. By the time I I met someone the other day, he was going into his junior year, was already $100,000 in debt. And I said, what are you majoring in? He said, business. I said, well, I think you need to switch majors. (laughs) (laughs) Business 101, don't get $100,000 in debt before you start
1: having a business with profits and there's nothing. There'll be no profits. We're going straight to insolvency
0: right and 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 you you know you mentioned the point of this skills gap again what was the country built on it was built on innovation it was built on all of these skills that literally built the country and this is this is the biggest societal challenge i think
1: it's a it's a scandal it's a scandal and you know what i i'll bitch about millennials along with anybody else they're an easy target but but we're We're the clouds from which the snowflakes fell. We did this. We set the table. We told them the best path for the most people was the most expensive path. And then we step back. And when you look at things like the Varsity Blues scandal that's going on, and when you look at, there's just so many things about the college experience that don't have anything to do with learning. And there's so many things that are going on at college right now that are antithetical to education and and the constitution i mean it's 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 bananas the the safe space environment that has infected our way of thinking is really it's back to the safety net that we've been talking about it's back to everybody's sphincter is going to slam shut pretty and, soon if we don't get this worked out
0: and it's funny because uh i always tell my daughters don't go to college none of them listen to me <laughs> and i figure okay i can't you can't fight with a teenager, really. And, and I want to be there for them later. But my, my oldest has recently left college, so I'm very proud of her because uh, she realizes in the classroom, you learn classroom skills. And to do what she really wants to do, she needs to be out doing it. But right after she left, I got a note from her college. They didn't realize yet that she had left saying she owes $16 and 92 (laughs) cents, or they're going to send it to an attorney or a collection agency. And they hope they don't have to do that unless she pays ASAP. They use the word ASAP. Yeah. And I wrote back and I said, her tuition so far, she has spent, spent $132,000. And, uh, and by the way, if you look at the three schools closest to you, their employment rates after college are all higher than yours and their tuitions are lower. So are you real? And you called me the day before for a donation. So are you really going to write me about, um, $16 and 92 cents? And what does she owe it for? So they sent me, she owes it for her dorm room or her dorm room to microwave and they all share equally. And I looked up on Amazon, what's a, a microwave costs. A microwave costs $50. They were charging $250 for the microwave and then dividing it up among like 50 kids and charging $16. Anyway, this is, this is part of the insanity.
1: Of course it is. It's, it's micro-macro. It's a big, giant, giant, giant problem, but the micro examples will make you crazy. You know. Yeah. Really? More money for the student union? Really? A bigger stadium? What, what are we talking about? This thing that we each have in front of us right now, the, this miracle gives us access to 95% of all of the known information in the history of the species. The access right now that we paid for when we went to school That was a big part of the tuition, right? You know, you you want to be in front of people who have access to the knowledge that that we need. Well, we're those people now. I just watched a, a lecture from MIT last week for free. You can do the same thing with Yale or Brown. It's all out there. You know, the information is there. I'm not comparing. Look, my experience in college was invaluable. I finished in 1984, two years at a community college. A year off and then a, a couple of years at a university. I got a liberal arts degree. It cost eleven thousand dollars. The exact same experience today is ninety-two grand. In the history of our country, nothing has ever become more expensive more quickly, not not real estate, not health care, not food, not energy, nothing. So what's happened to higher education? can't be divorced from its cost. And people try and do it all the time because they wanna talk about an investment in your future. This is not an investment. This is a shell game. Yeah,
0: I I agree. And again, we could probably, there's so many aspects of that, but and there's so many other industries that are affected. You didn't know I was gonna be this fascinating, did you? (laughs) No, I knew because A, I've been a fan for a long time, but B, your book, the Way I Heard It by Mike Rowe. And again, all of those stories, you could have just kept with your autobiography, but you tell all these stories about so many fascinating people and then what you learned from them, you can see this is where education comes from. It is, like you say, about being curious about others, learning from their story, seeing what's possible, because they're not telling, they're not telling, your story about Ted Williams, they don't teach that in a college mm-hmm. class. But that story is invaluable. All of these stories and and what you can derive from them, that's a real education. That's why people should read this book, not just because they're curious about you, but to see all the stories that then influenced you are so fascinating, and how you present those stories in in such a almost puzzle like manner. But Mike Rowe, the book is the way I heard it. Mike, thank you so much for spending the extra time and coming on the podcast. I hope you come on again. I'll be here tomorrow. I appreciate it. You
1: bet. <laughs> Thanks, James. Sincerely, I appreciate
0: it. Wait, wait, wait. I want to offer you a free copy of my new book, The Side Hustle Bible. I saw the need that everybody I knew was starting side hustles. I identified 177 specific side hustle opportunities that I think are doable by anyone My team has interviewed and researched all the entrepreneurs involved and selected the best opportunities. You can get started tomorrow on pretty much any of them. So get this book, The Side Hustle Bible, get it for free at jamesfreebooks.com. That's jamesfreebooks.com to claim your free copy of The Side Hustle Bible, www.jamesfreebooks.com.
1: Life is a highway.